Okay, who knows Katie Rofi? Ah, you don't know her? She's a professor at New York University. <laughs> I didn't know her either. I just found her article. She wrote this surprising article. You know what it's called? She calls it the joy of stress. I mean, just the topic, I saw it. I was cruising through this page on the internet, and I was like, what? I mean, not the strain of stress, not the pain of stress, not the prison of stress, the joy of stress. I mean, what kind of person writes an article on the joy of stress? Um, she recognizes real clearly at the beginning of the article, she's not uh, you know, a pie in the sky and, and disengaged or detached from reality. She recognizes that stress is everywhere, recognizes that it's in everyone, and recognizes that it's only on the increase. That stress disorders in America are now inflicting one in five people. Way, way up. Growing every year. Uh, she says stress is so universally experienced, she asks this very shocking question. I think it's an incredible question. Do we fall a little bit in love with our anxiety? Um, are we attached to it? And then she does the absolute unthinkable. She starts pulling out positives in stress. She cites a, a guy, Canadian psychologist named Robin Alter, who does some research on children and anxiety. And uh, he says, in anxious children, the imaginative capacity is often more highly developed than that of calmer children. Now, Rofi got really, really excited, and she quickly jumped in, and this is what she said in responding to the research. It's true that the child who is envisioning hundreds of red eyes in the darkness watching him or a giant moving statue with teeth out of his bedroom window is more dynamic and better company than, let's face it, the one who is tranquilly, tranquilly moving a train around a track. I thought, okay, well, I guess I need to start going into my four-year-old's room at night. Just about when he's ready to, you know, fall asleep. Right? I mean, let's just make him a little more anxious. I mean, let's kind of get the, the control issues, you know, a little positive, the rewards, and I'll start playing with his mind a little bit and just make him more jumpy in the house. I think that would be helpful because it'll make him a more imaginative kid. So I'm thinking, this stuff must be true. I've got a whole new parenting technique for Ty. Let's just rattle his little world. I mean, I already got four kids. Let's just try it out. Maybe it'll work on him. If it doesn't, I still got four others to lean on. Right? Just when I started thinking that, though, she actually, she, it's almost like she starts doubting the hype of the positive joys of stress in her concluding statement. And so I didn't know what to make of the article, but this is what she said. She said, my mother was a prolific writer and an inventive worrier. She has a scene in one of her novels where a character is overflowing with happiness on the beach, and she's purely and completely elated. I love the beach. Now, where's my beach? I like beach. Some of you like mountains. I want the beach. With her husband and her children because she is so happy. But because she's so happy, she intuitively scans the horizon for sharks. I always vowed I would not be that person. But I find myself, even in my most exultant moments, looking out on a gray, foggy dawn in the city streets, for sharks. There are sharks all over this passage. Producing stress and anxiety on everyone in this passage. But there's also a core calm. 
And that core calm is what we're about this morning. Welcome to a core calm amidst sharks. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. Acts 16, 16 through 40. As we were going to the place of, of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged him into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them out into prison ordering the jailer to keep them safe, safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the, in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. Trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. He brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. He, then he brought them up, up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with the entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let the, those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do, and do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and, visit, and visited Lydia, and, then, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. I mean, who does that? Who's been beaten, thrown in jail, and then when they're finally let out, says, no, 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 not so fast. I want a public apology. That's absolutely phenomenal. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would uh, shine on the page. Would you give light to the mind? And would you give uh, realness? Uh, make it real in our hearts. And we ask this in your name. Amen. All right, here's the plan. What's the big idea of the second missionary journey? Y'all got it? 
big idea is this. Real ministry is fruitful ministry. So real ministry is fruitful ministry. It's not successful ministry. It's not faithful ministry. So we got to figure out what fruitful ministry is. And so we started off with a bang and we started off with really what could have been in many's eyes, a catastrophic failure. We start off with the first church split in the history of church history. Paul and Barnabas go their separate ways. And so what we look at real ministry there is we start tapping into the reality that real ministry is always messy. Ministry is always messy, fruitful ministry, because the ones who are doing the ministry are messy. The ones who are receiving the ministry are messy. It's just one big mess, but it's fruitful. In other words, God loves to move into messes. He specializes in fruitfulness in messy places. He doesn't work in spite of our weaknesses. He works because of our weaknesses. Okay? Second, we saw that fruitful ministry is becoming a certain kind of person. So it's not doing things. It's not doing evangelism. It's actually becoming an evangelistic person. It's not doing ministry, it's actually becoming a missional person, which is kind of the buzzword today. So we saw that God used three key people to continue to shape Paul into a missional person, to make him a kind of person, to make him a certain kind of person, to make him someone who down into his bones and in his blood is missional. The happiest kind of person the most joyful kind of person, a person that has this core calm when all hell is breaking loose. Timothy was used. The Macedonian mystery man was used in Paul's life. Lydia was used. Well, today and next week, I tried, honestly, my wife can vouch for me, I tried to do this whole passage in one sermon. I just couldn't do it. So it's two. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at fruitful ministry being an unchained power. Fruitful ministry is an unstoppable power. It's not a caged power. It's not a chained power. It's a winning power. It's a power that echoes from the deepest foundations of originality. It's a power that has original control in it. A author-like power. It's a power that gets down to the foundations of the universe and holds it together and actually made it. And now in the recreated universe, everything is held together by this power. So that's what we're going to look at. And we're going to see it found in three pictures. You've got the fortune teller, the jailer, Paul and Silas. We'll look at the last two, the jailer, Paul and Silas, next week. Today we're going to look at the fortune teller. I've got to ask you. I mean, I've got, basically, I didn't think I would get this much out of this particular passage. I was thinking it was going to be an intro subpoint into the other main point of the Philippian jailer scene. That's the most popular passage. It's the one we, we know a lot about. We move quickly to it. But I couldn't get out of this first part. And actually, If you were to have a highlight of Paul's ministry endeavors, this is fast becoming one of my favorite. This first encounter. Now, what's the goal of this unchained power in our life? I mean, why is Acts 16 here? Why did Luke record these three powerful pictures of an unchained gospel, an unchained power from on high? Why? I think it's purpose is to do something to you and me, and that is to push deep into our life a core calm, 
for life and for ministry. So again, a core calm that can't be moved. A core calm that settles in no matter what's happening on the outside and no matter what's falling to pieces. There's a sense like the psalmist says, he starts painting a picture of creation going in reverse. We start saying the mountains start falling back into the sea. The sea starts reclaiming land. The sea starts reclaiming creation. We're going back to a, a decreation. And the psalmist says, and I won't fear. I won't fear bad reports. I won't fear if everything I know in this life comes undone. I don't know about you, but I want that. I want that. And I think this passage really wants to give it to us. I think it wants to give you and me a core calm that can't be chained, caged, stopped. Okay. The slave girl, fortune girl. Fortune teller. Let's step into the text. You ready? We're going to enter into her world. First, I want to say this. If you have your Bible, you have, if you do have your Bible, you might want to look at this. There's a connection between Lydia and her. What's happening here? This is the European church. So these are the first members of the European church. So in other words, if we're to look around, we've got to have these kind of members in our church. But there's, notice the different types of people coming into the church. You've got a wealthy woman, a Lydia merchant. But you have a woman. Then you have a, a slave girl. But not only that, with a really, really, as we're going to see, rough background, a really, like, scandalous background. And then you're going to have a jailer who's an ex-Roman soldier. Uh, So you've got an interesting kind of collection of people that the European church is going to be built around. And the European church is responsible for you getting the gospel. So here are the first church members that end up being the main I don't know, outpost of the kingdom of God into the Western world what eventually gets to you and me. That's pretty incredible. Now, Paul, he's going, remember, he's now into Europe. This is the first time being in Europe. He's now seeing the gospel going to Gentile lands. He's now going to unchurched people. He's leaving the church realm. He's leaving a culture of religion, and he's going to a culture of irreligion. He's leaving a culture where everyone's trying to be good. We're going to a culture where people don't care. I don't care whether you want to be good. What does it matter? If it works for you, fine. We have a, we have a God to that God, the good God, and the be good God. But if you want to be bad, come on over here too. We've got lots of things for you to do if you want to be bad. It's a whole radically different culture. But Paul so loves his countrymen that the first two places he goes to, which links verse 13, Lydia, with the slave girls, he goes to the house of prayer first. So in other words, he goes where the Jewish folks are gathering to read the scripture, hear a sermon, and pray. I just think that's fascinating. And again, it gives us an insight into the type of person Paul was. I mean, he loved, he loved people that were stoning him. He loved people that were hating him. It's amazing. All right, here's the feel of this text. Are you ready? (laughs) It's really creepy. She's waiting for him. She meets them. She knows they're here, and she's lurking, stalking, waiting for them. 
And look at verse 16. She has a spirit of divination. Literally, she has a spirit of python. Do you know what that means? Uh, In Greek mythology, um, Zeus had a temple. No, Apollos had a temple. And his temple was guarded by a python snake. I don't know about you, but it's just really fascinating to me that, you know, one thing that's real clear in the application here that we can, we can say very, very clearly, uh, the Bible never thinks snakes are good mascots. They're just never, never. And it's fascinating to look at ancient culture and see how many times the snake is a mascot in that culture. Makes you wonder, doesn't it? All right, so Apollos has this temple. He has this python guarding the temple. The, the python turns bad and goes against Apollos. So Apollos kills it. But the snake doesn't die. The snake has a spirit. And the spirit inhabits or is channeled or is controlling the priestesses of the temple, which are women. And what it does is that supposedly the spirit of the python gives these priestesses the power or the gift or the ability to give oracles about the future. A fortune teller. And we're thinking, who cares? It's not a big deal. No, it is a really big deal. Think about it. If you have the ability to tell the future, if you have a gift to tell the future, uh, you can give people power over what they really want. I mean, I'm really really concerned about... um, I'm anxious and I'm stressed about this and I don't know what tomorrow's going to mean for that. Well, let me tell you. And all of a sudden, you've got this control over things that really, really matter to you. So in other words, the, the fortune teller could give someone the power to control their life. I mean, what's really, really happy to you I can give you the power to know what happens to it, to know what might threaten it, to know how you can remove that stress and that anxiety in your life. In other words, what's fascinating in the text is that the fortune teller gives the person the ability to control their own salvation, their own core happiness and freedom, what makes them complete and what makes their life worth living. Kind of goes like this. Here's how it might have worked in the Greco world, the Roman Greco world. You have Ralph, because that's a, that's a Greco name. Ralph works really hard at his job. And he works really hard at his job because he wants to prove himself. He wants to prove that he's an okay person. He wants to prove that he's a validated, acceptable person. He wants to prove that he measures up. He wants to prove that he's okay. So if he has financial success, he's proven. So what happens is he's at a crossroads in his career because his boss's position just opens up. Now he's got a decision to make. I could apply for that position. And man, if I get that position, I get an increased bonus financial package, which means I'm okay, which means I made it in my parents' eyes, which means I made it to those that my classmates, I've made it. My dreams come true. But if he doesn't get it, He looks like a failure to the rest of the people in the workplace. And possibly he'll be passed over if any other promotions come up. Maybe permanently so. So what does Ralph do? Goes to a fortune teller. He says, 
Should I take this job or not? Should I apply for it or not? And the fortune teller holds in her hands the ability to control his worth, his value in financial success. Yeah, take it. No, don't take it. We all struggle with this. We all act like our own fortune teller or we defer to a fortune teller because we think it's going to give us control over our life. I mean, for some of us, we do this. We, our fortune teller might be like um, parental approval. You know, kids that go off to college, high school kids, I mean, there's a sense in which you so long for your parents' approval. If you get their approval, you have core approval of your very being. And so your parents' approval becomes like a fortune teller. I get it, I got it. If I don't, I'm devastated as a person. For others of us, it could be an addictive substance. We think, look, if I have this addictive substance, I'll get the escape and the freedom from the pain that I feel in my life, and I'll get a happiness and a pleasure that reaches into my very being. Because we think that this addictive substance can control our happiness, can give us our fortune, can tell us what to do. Others of us, we think it might be a special someone. You know, if I have that special someone, if I have that, that's my fortune teller, a special someone, because now I'll have the intimacy and the love and the acceptance and that deep relational connection that I long for and I can't ever seem to meet. So do you see how we do this? A fortune teller is just as appropriate or applicable today as it was then. I know it's culturally odd. We're not, I mean, there are, I mean, there are actual places. I see them all the time. You have the cards, tarot card reading, the Ouija boards, all that kind of stuff. But I think we need to take a look at, man, I, I also am trying to control my life, right? All right, the fortune teller's condition is worse than we think. So beyond the crystal balls, beyond the astrology, beyond the tarot card reading, and even beyond Greek mythology of Python, Look what's going on in here. There's a demonic being there. Or plural. So a real dark power is at work in the fortune telling. Now we could we can move in this kind of direction. There is a spiritual power unleashed in fortune telling. And it doesn't necessarily have to be demonic. I mean, we can talk about that, and we will someday. But any time we give control to something in our life, it controls us. It has a very dark, abusive, shaping influence on us. That's why Jesus says, listen, you can't serve two masters. You're going to love one, hate the other. You just can't. Whatever we look to to give us core happiness in life and give us control over our life, whatever our fortune teller is, that becomes an oppressive spiritual power in our life. A dark, abusive power in our life. Why? Because what happens when you don't get your parents' approval? You're devastated. 
What happens if you don't get that special someone or that special someone rejects you? You're devastated. What happens if you do apply for that job and you don't get it? Your life is undone. Do you feel the dark, oppressive power that's deeper than just crystal balls and tarot cards? She might have averted, I mean, this is what's interesting. You know that the slave girl, she didn't start out thinking that way. She didn't think it was going to be like this bad. When she started out, she thought that this gift, this ability to tell the future was going to be a great blessing in her life. She thought it was actually going to be a way that she could control her happiness and control her freedom and control her fullness and her completeness. But it ends up controlling her. It ends up abusing her. It ends up undoing her. In the end, she became controlled by what she thought would give her control. I mean, I mean, how often does that happen? I mean, let's just take the big one, might as well, for men that struggle with this. You might think pornography is going to give you control over the beauty you want and the pleasure you want and the intimacy you want, but in the end, it controls you. We might think that fixing ourselves, you know, this, end, this endless, and in Christian circles, that's why you wonder, Jeff, you guys talk about sanctification in such a different way. Why? Because, because the church is so addicted to fixing itself. It's so addicted to managing itself. It's so addicted to picking at itself and picking at other people. It's so addicted to self-evaluation, fixed and focused on self over and over again. Why do we have so many mental health issues? I guarantee you the majority of them for looking at ourselves so long. Mental health comes from looking outside of ourselves, not inside of ourselves. And so if we're constantly picking and performing and doing that to ourselves, doing it to those we love, in the end, our standards, our rules, our perfectionism controls us. Now, here's why this account is so fascinating for me. It's becoming one of my favorites. Look at verse 17. She followed Paul. She's crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, that's really, that's a great, I mean, that's an incredible message. Now, I just want, there's two ways to look at it. That could be the right translation, but I want you to know there's an interpretive decision that the readers had to make or the interpreters had to make. So you got two possibilities. It could be that translation or that interpretation, or it could be this one. Could go like this. These men are servants of their most high God. In other words, they're servants of the most high God in their spiritual pantheon. Who proclaim to you not the way of salvation, but a way of salvation. There's no definite article, so it could go either way. So this is really fascinating. What's fascinating about this passage is that everyone in this passage is trying to find a way of salvation, and it's blatantly on the page, and it's almost like it's public discourse. We're going to get to Acts 17, and they talk like that in this culture. I mean, it's fascinating, isn't it? They're talking about, okay, what's the way of salvation? What's the way of happiness? What's the meaning of life? What gives you worth and value? So how do you really feel like you're okay as a person? How do you know that though you're shattered and broken, you can be rescued or redeemed? 
How does that happen? Well, that's common, open discourse in this culture. Wouldn't you love to live in a culture like that? Where they're all talking about, yeah, where's the, the latest pantheon of gods and, and who's, the, who's the big one on the pantheon? You know, which one really works? Which one you really get? It's fascinating. So the struggle for our salvation is a given in the irreligious world. It's a given. Now, that could be what's going on. That could be the message. If it's not, it could be this is what they're literally saying. This, this demonic spirit through this girl is literally saying, because that's what they did when they met Jesus, oh, you are God. But remember, their issue was, uh, it's not time yet, right? I know, I know we're going for a swim, but when you mean into the pigs and they're going in the sea, it's not like the big deep yet, right, Jesus? I mean, they know they know their time has an end. And when they met Jesus, it was more like, it's not time, right? So they knew who Jesus was. So that could be the translation. But here's what we need to see. To have a, a demonic sponsor endorse you is never a good thing. Now, Paul's starting the ministry. He's bringing in the gospel, and he has this demonic spokesman saying, yep, yep, I endorse them. I put my brand on them. Uh, that's never a good thing. So no matter what, this is not a good thing. Now let's keep going. Verse 18. And this she kept doing for many days. <laughs> so, oh my word, can you imagine? You know, I get tired of my kids asking me the same thing and saying the same thing over and over again. Imagine she's walking and screeching and screaming the whole time this. Now it's known all over the city at this point. That's why the crowd that we saw later, we'll see next week, they get so worked up because they all know about it. Because she's been screeching this forever and ever. You are servants of the most high God. They're going to tell you the way of salvation or a way of salvation, right? And then Paul, having become greatly annoyed, I just love that. I mean, Paul got annoyed. (laughs) He turns and he says to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her and it. Notice it's an it. It's not a he, it's not a she, it's some sort of dark being. It came out of her. So Paul had enough. And he was annoyed at the spirit. I want you to not miss that emotional state of Paul. Paul is greatly annoyed. Don't miss that. It it gives us such insight into powers that we think are so big and so monstrous and so diabolical and so devastating and Paul gets annoyed. So, if Paul saw The Conjuring or any of the, if you see, you notice the new shift, the slasher movies are, they're still there. But the slasher movies are giving way to a new breed of horror flicks. They're giving way to a new breed that are based on actual events. Now, in my day, it was Amityville Horror. It was the only like, based on actual events terrorized by all my generation for a long time. I look at the Amityville Horror now and I'm like, that's nothing. Go see The Conjuring. So now you go and you check out these movies. They are now giving, based on life events supposedly, research. Uh, Departments and colleges and universities are investigating. That's the kind of movie that's coming out. Let's say Paul goes and sees one of them. Uh, He's not jumping in that movie. He doesn't scream. He doesn't go home and look under his bed. He doesn't go home and turn the bathroom light on. He doesn't go in and say, Silas, you got to stay in the room with me tonight. Uh, 
He doesn't get stressed. He doesn't get anxious. He gets annoyed. He gets bothered. They mean nothing to him. You bother me. Stop. Don't miss the simplicity here either. Paul turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. This is not an elaborate exorcism. Uh, There are not rituals and rites that are going on here. There are no magic boogie words that, that do the trick and you better make sure you hit that right word or it doesn't take. Uh, There are no symbols that are brought out, powerful relics to do the work here. There is only a name. There is only a person. There is a resurrected redeemer. And by that name, get out. I mean, what we have here, I mean, if we wanted to, we could explore this a lot more. I'm not going to, but the dynamic of how you change is loaded into that passage right there. Whatever ails us, whatever fortune-telling stuff we got going on in our life, whatever counterfeit controls and substitute saviors and areas where we're strategizing to be happy and find cosmic ultimate love and all of those things, wherever that is, the only way that stuff gets driven out of your life is when the name, the person, drives it out and replaces it with himself. So I don't want you to miss the um, unleashed power and control here too. Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. I mean, it was just like change on the spot. Winning power won. An unchained and uncaged original control moved in like the author of power, like the originator of what it means to control, spoke, depart. Like the foundations of a mass of chaos, chaotic waters, let there be light. And like a redeemer who walks into a tomb where a man has been dead for three, four days and says, Lazarus, come out. That kind of core command, that kind of core control, that kind of original power, just like that. So what's the point? There's a core calm for you here for your life, for your relationships, for your ministry. And that core calm only comes from a name, a person, a name above all names, a person who's resurrected and reigns, and a person who's king, and a person in his very being that was there when the world was created, and it's through him 
that a new world is created. That when he arrived in his incarnation, otherworldly control and power was being unleashed into this world. When he lived a perfect life of a substitutionary righteousness, otherworldly control and power was unleashed in this world. When he died on the cross, an otherworldly, original, commanding control was shattered and let loose on this world. And then when he rose from the dead, he ascended on high and he unleashes his spirit. It's phenomenal. Author control. Author power original stuff he alone is the true fortune teller he alone gives you the control you long for he alone gives you the core happiness he is that core happiness you feel stained and you feel dirty he's the stain remover you feel shattered by your falling short and your imperfections and not measuring up. Forget the law of God. Let's just, how about the law of productivity? How do you do with that in a day? Why do I leave and go home depressed every night at six o'clock? Because I never did what I thought I could do. The law of productivity, the control of productivity is saying, you lost, you blew it. And how about you ladies? I mean, you should be multitaskers. Kids, no problem. Meals on the table by six, no problem. What's wrong with you? Dirty house, I'm ashamed. Now, why aren't you that Proverbs 31 woman? I don't know why I'm talking about that, but we are. So we're going to talk more about the jailer. We're going to talk more about Paul and Silas next week. But the point for this week, the point for you and me, I think is this. I think it's time to start getting annoyed at the fortune tellers in your life. I think it's time, if you're a Christian, I think it's time for you and I to walk around and say, where are the fortune tellers in my life? Where are those areas that I seek to control my happiness, seek to control my freedom, seek to control what I think is intimacy, seek to control love, whatever it is. And I think it's time to say, I'm disgusted with you. I'm really annoyed with you. You can't give me the goods You can't control my life. You can't give me what I need. And not only that, when I blow it with you, you're horrible. You beat me up and terrorize me all day. You're an oppressive spiritual power. I think like Paul, you're free and I'm free to get really annoyed and then in your annoyment, your annoying, or your annoyment, if that's a word, then in that reality, um, I think you can now look for change on the spot. I think you and I can now say, there is no other name. There is no other person. There's only one true fortune teller. And he is resurrected and reigning, and he's the redeemer and he's mine.